It is great to see you this afternoon. It is brilliant to be able to share in this service, isn't it? And to be able to observe that beautiful moment of confession. But I guess for many of us, the story of the Bible might be something a little bit unusual to us. Perhaps we're not used to it. And perhaps if we're on that journey of the Christian faith and we're trying to come to terms with it, or we've embraced it and we're still coming to terms with it. Um, One of the things that I think is really helpful to understand is that the whole of the story of our lives is, firstly, it's an experience of now and not yet. We're kind of, we are something, but we're not quite something. There's something which is now, but it's something that will also be seen in the future. The whole of the story of the New Testament and our experience and our journey is about that. It's a now and not yet experience. Let me try to illustrate it with some confusion that I had as a 12-year-old. It was back in the olden days. Some of you might not even know that 1977 existed. But in 1977, it was a special year. It was the Queen's Silver Jubilee. I knew nothing and actually didn't care much about the Queen. But one thing I did know was that in 1953, Edmund Hillary and Sherpa Tensing climbed Everest. I knew that. I didn't know when the Queen became Queen, but I knew, because I was a bit of a mountain geek, that Hillary and Tensing climbed Everest in 1953. Then I heard that that news arrived on the morning of the Queen's coronation. Now that really confused me, because it was 1977, and if they heard that on the morning that the Queen was crowned, then it was only 24 years and not 25 years. That really confused me for much of my adult life. Actually, it wasn't that long ago where the penny dropped. And it's actually a startling realization, and it's such an important picture of our experience. The queen became queen on the death of her father in 1952. She was the queen then. But we celebrated her coronation as queen in 1953. I guess that's probably because you can't organize pageantry and ceremony and incredible spectacle like a coronation on the day after somebody becomes queen. It takes time and planning and organization. But that's an amazing picture of our experience, actually. And as we look at the text that we've just read, I just want to think about the first four verses because Everest and the coronation are a tremendous picture of where Jesus is and where we will be, sorry, where he will be, and as a result, where we are and where we will be if we trust in him. And Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, it says this, just the back end of the verse, it says this, that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's what it says in uh, 
verse 1 of chapter 3. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, if you were living in the ancient world in that time, if you were experiencing everything that the ancient world talked about, all of those pictures would be incredibly important to you. And as soon as you hear of somebody sitting at the right hand in a kind of uh, kind of higher authoritative kind of kingly way, you would know that that is an astoundingly important place. It's a place of equal rule. That's what it means. What, what we're hearing there is that Jesus is there as a victorious king. That's where he is now. Now that's a remarkable statement that Paul is making. That Jesus is on the right hand of God. But the rest of the Bible, and particularly towards the end, it tells of another moment where countless numbers of people will be gathered together in a moment which recognizes him as king. It seems to me as though what the Bible is portraying is just like our queen. Jesus is king at the moment where he's raised from the dead and ascends into heaven. But there is a future moment, almost like a coronation, where countless numbers of people acknowledge that reality. That's, a, that's amazing, isn't it? Now, take yourself all the way back to 1977. What would it have been like for that relatively small number of people to receive the invitation to be at that coronation. That would have been amazing, wouldn't it? What Jesus does, actually, and his whole life is set out to invite us to that coronation, to be part of that splendor, to, as we see here in verse 1, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He's saying, you who believe, think about something, set your mind on something which is greater, something which is bigger, something which is way more wonderful than you could ever imagine. The first thing that we see in these few verses is that the resurrection of Jesus is our hope. It's our hope. Very often we see Jesus' resurrection, the claims that the Bible makes. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. And if he rose from the dead, then maybe what he claims to be, the Son of God, is actually true. And if he is the Son of God and he sits enthroned in heaven, then what this verse is saying that if we place our hope in Him, it's as though we are raised with Christ. See that? It's, a, it's, a, it's as though we are raised with Christ. We have a hope for the future because of what Jesus did. That's the first thing that we see. And so what we've celebrated this afternoon, what we've observed... It's three guys who've said, I believe that. 
I believe that the resurrection of Jesus gives me hope. That is, that is something which I think, in all sorts of different ways, our world is desperately clamoring, looking, trying to find hope. And this says that in the resurrection of Jesus, we, if we, are trust, if we trust in Him, it is as though we are raised with Christ. Second thing that we see, and this is the kind of springboard from where we are from that moment, and that's what baptism is, it's a declaration, it's a way of saying in act, this is what I believe. From this moment on, we are called and we have the opportunity to have a better vision. Look at what it goes on to say. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. What, what, what's your goal in life? What's your aim? What are you looking for? What are you hoping for? What are you seeking after? What would be success to you? What would be security to you? What would be worth to you? What Paul is encouraging us to do when we look at this is to realize that all of the things that we set our hope in actually fall into the last category of that verse. They fall into the category of earthly things. You know, so many of those things that we place our hope in, they are good things. It is good to be secure. It is good to build relationships that are lasting. It is good for us to find a place of financial security. It is good for us to find a place of satisfaction in whatever we might decide to place our hope in. But we have a massive problem when we make good things ultimate things. When we make temporary things and we take those temporary things and we fill them with the responsibility of being eternal things. What Paul is saying is all of those good things, they are earthly in the sense that they're not going to last. They're not going to last. Those things that we place our hope in, they will not last because they're formed in the same stuff as us, which is temporary. We, at best, are temporary. I'm not much of a kind of poetry fan. Some of you might just almost not want to listen to me now because I've even said that. You might think, if he doesn't like poetry, then there's something wrong with him. But there was one poem that absolutely gripped me. And it was two lines. First line was this. Life at best is very brief. And the second line was, like the falling of a leaf. But the word falling was written kind of down a number of lines, as though the word falling was falling down the page, and leaf was on the final line. I thought it was brilliant. Maybe because it's visual, maybe that worked for me. But that's, that poem just hit, 
I remember I was, I don't know whether I was about 12 or 13 when I saw it, but it just astounded me. It conveyed the reality of our, our experience. Life at best is very brief, like the falling of a leaf. And yet we place our hope in things which are just like that falling leaf. They're very brief. And what we are invited to have is a better vision to set our mind on things above. Because things above are the things that last. The things that are eternal. And so what Paul is saying is if you see that Jesus is the risen King, He has bridged that gap between the temporary and the eternal. He has reached into the eternal. And if you trust in that, you are placing your hope in something which is eternal, not in something which is temporary. Everything else will fail us, but He will not fail. So we see that the resurrection of Jesus is our hope. It gives us a better vision. The third thing that we see is that His death is our death. Look at verse 3. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now, I am pretty convinced that the three people that we baptized a few minutes ago were alive when we baptized them. I'm pretty sure they were. They might not have felt it when they dipped into that cold water. In fact, I'm pretty sure that a few of them actually resisted going all the way under. <laughs> Having baptized a few people over the years, it's a battle to get them under, I tell you. You've got to really force it through. But do you know what? What that symbolizes is dying. That's what that picture is. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ. You die in that pool. Or you're making a statement that you have died, and you live. That is the most remarkable claim that the Bible makes. It has become a cliche. It has been parodied on pretty much most uh, U.S. comedies. It's certainly been parodied on the likes of The Simpsons, born-again Christians. Where does that come from? It comes from Jesus meeting a teacher of the Jews. His name was Nicodemus, and he came to him at night. I think every indication was because he didn't want anybody else to know that he was meeting with Jesus. But the end result of that conversation was Jesus said to Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus' obvious response was that is essentially impossible. How can I go back into my mother's womb? How can I do that? And Jesus effectively says to him, you are born again by faith in me. Do you know, I know it's been cliched, I know it's a parody, but there is no other kind of Christian than a Christian that has been born again. There is no other thing. 
Either you are born again or you're not born again. Do you know what? I don't want to wear a great big badge over, the, over me that says born again and all the rest of it. I don't want to fall into the use of that as a parody. But the reality is that if we have faith in Jesus, we have been born again because the old me has got to die. And the new me has got to live. And this verse tells me that the new me, the life that I now have, is hidden with Christ in God. It works like this. When you come to faith in me, it's as though the old you dies and the new you lives. But immediately in that life, it is connected with the risen Jesus in heaven. It is that secure. True faith in Jesus can never be broken because we are hidden with Christ in God. If Christ lives, our lives are securely hidden in Him. So if His death is our death, then the obvious outcome of that is that His resurrection is our resurrection. <laughs> Look at the next verse, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. See that? That is incredible. It's saying two things. It's saying one thing, that there is going to come a moment where the Jesus that has risen and that is in heaven, is going to appear again. Now, do you know what? That sounds ridiculous to say. It sounds stupid to say. And without evidence, it is stupid to say. And yet the evidence that I would claim is one simple thing. That Jesus of Nazareth proved himself to be the Son of God by rising from the dead and returning to heaven. That is the evidence which is presented to us by eyewitnesses which confounds my belief in what is normal and what is possible. And it confronts us with this, that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that if he rose from the dead, then I have every expectation that if he says he's going to return, I've got to believe it. I've got to. Because what he has already done has proved to be true. Therefore, what he will do in the future, we have every expectation, will be proved to be true. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This was written to Christians who were part of the Roman Empire. The glory of Rome was absolutely written in to the psyche of everybody in the Roman Empire. Everybody understood the glory of Rome, this spectacular thing this eternal kingdom 
that would never end, this beautiful thing. This was written to a group of Christians in Colossae. They were outside of that glory. It's as though they were outside of the cathedral when the queen was being crowned. They weren't there. They weren't part of the glory of Rome. They were looking in on the outside. But they knew that the glory of Rome was a special thing. Glory was a word that was not unusual to be used in the day of these writings. And yet what Paul says is, I will confound every kind of idea that you have of glory. If you think glory is Rome, let me tell you about a much greater glory. Let me tell you about a glory which is beyond any imagination that you could conceive of. Let me tell you about a glory which is eternal. Let me tell you about a glory which, unlike the Roman Empire, would actually, which did actually crumble, will never crumble because it's eternal. And then he says, if you believe in this Jesus, then you will appear with him in glory. Isn't that amazing? You will become part of that very thing which is beautiful, which is majestic, which we don't deserve to be part of. We become part of it. We enter into. It's as though we are invited to follow down the aisle of the coronation in the kind of procession of the king. We're invited to follow down and become part of that tremendous coronation experience. Because one day Christ will appear and we will be part of that glory. The greatest powers that this world has ever seen. Genghis Khan. Our current wave of political leaders. Right the way through the history of time, every great leader, every great power will one day come to terms with a greater power that it has ignored in this world. And Jesus Christ will be seen to be the ultimate glory. Baptism that we've just shared, that we've just observed, has been enacted by the church for the past 2,000 years. Here we are in a relatively modern building, in a most surprising place for a church to be, with a wooden frame and a lining which between you and me has a tiny little hole in it. (laughs) It is leaking. Very slowly, thankfully. It's nothing special, is it? But what we have just shared is a continuation. We have become part of the past 2,000 years. People who were baptized in the catacombs of Rome for fear of the Roman authorities, 
shared in the same experience as we have shared in this afternoon. What is that? It is individuals who are saying, that Jesus is my Jesus. That death is my death. That resurrection is my resurrection. That hope is my hope. We might be in 2019, but you know some things from the past. We can never escape from them. They continue to speak to us with an authoritative power, and here we are celebrating the very thing that has been celebrated for 2,000 years. Why? Because the risen Jesus is the same risen Jesus for that past 2,000 years. Nothing has changed. So our hope is that every one of us who have shared in that moment of baptism, those of us who have been baptized, those of us who are yet to be baptized, those of us who believe in this room tonight, there will be a moment. The Bible says, in the twinkling of an eye. <laughs> like, just like that. Everything will change again. It says, you will be transformed. And you will be like him. That is the most astounding offer of glory. And it is made to every one of us as we hear the invitation of Jesus to trust in him and find hope. The verse that we looked at last week, which really centers the whole of the message of Colossians, and actually you could write it across the top of the whole of the Bible, and it's this. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's it. That's everything. And we've been able to share it this afternoon.